Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. Welcome back to the CCF podcast. In this session, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10. And I wanted to start by just saying a little bit about the kind of the format of, of Matthew chapter 10. It's uh, sometimes referred to as the second great discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. Because the thing about Matthew, um, structure-wise, is it's got uh, divided up into five different um kind of subsections where there's stories about things that Jesus has done followed by a discourse. Now, the first time this happened is in in Matthew 4 through 7. There's stories about what Jesus has done. And then the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, is the great discourse of that. And then uh, it happens again here after Matthew 8 and 9 are stories about what Jesus is doing, um, mostly about healings and miracles, that kind of stuff. Um, Matthew 10 is a discourse where he sends out his disciples. And so we're going to be looking at that second discourse of Matthew now. Uh, with Matthew chapter 10. So because this is uh, the almost the entirety of the chapter is Jesus talking, and, and I happen to think that Jesus' words are fairly significant, uh, we're actually going to read a lot of text today. So let's go ahead and dive into some of that text. We're going to start verse 5, because essentially the first four verses of this chapter is just naming the disciples and saying who they are. Um, and then chapter, verse 5 starts off saying, These twelve, the twelve disciples, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's telling them uh, what they should be doing. They should be preaching the message that he has been himself has been preaching, that the kingdom of heaven is near. And, and the things they should be doing are the things that Jesus has been doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing those who have leprosy, driving out demons. These are the same, this is the same message that Jesus has been preaching, the same things that Jesus has been doing. He says, say what I say, do what I do. Which makes a lot of sense because these are his disciples and he's a rabbi. It's expected in, in the time of um, rabbinical Judaism in this time that what you would do as a disciple of a rabbi is to do what the rabbi did. You would preach and teach his message. You would do what he does. And so Jesus says, be my disciples. Say what I say, do what I do. And he sends them out on mission to do that. Now, what might be a little bit different is where he's sending them. Um we tend to, when we talk about this passage, we we talk about it in a, in a kind of an evangelistic standpoint, thinking that when Jesus sends out the 12, that he's trying to reach people that have never heard the gospel before, never heard, you know, whatever, uh, that it's it sending them out to new people. But where Jesus is actually sending them is to, in verse 6, it says, the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentiles, not the Samaritans, to the lost sheep of Israel, the people that are just like the disciples that grew up like they did, that have studied what they've studied, know what they know, that know who God is. But he says they need to hear this message. Maybe this message might be new to them. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's the message that Jesus has been preaching ever since he started preaching a message in the book of Matthew. And it's it's that idea that the kingdom of heaven is, is open, that 
that this message that that I, speaking of Jesus, am for everyone. And and so this is uh, something that might be new to some of his his hearers. Um, and then he tells them some other instructions about about how they should prepare for this. He says. In verse 9, do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. And I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that in the day of judgment than for that town. So he tells them to not bring any extra supplies. Don't bring any extra money. Don't bring any extra clothes, extra staff. Just go and God will provide. Trust God and rely on the generosity of others. It's kind of a challenging thing, and it might be a challenging thing for us today that we think about as we're on mission, as we're following Jesus, as we're going and, 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 and preaching the message that he preached and doing the things that he did, that we might want to have a, a backup and we might want to be ready for whatever might come. But Jesus says, don't take any extra stuff with you. Trust God. Rely on the generosity of others. And and that's what they're sent out to do. And the thing about it is it talks about here about hospitality, that you, that you have to rely on others' hospitality. But not only that, it talks about hospitality by referencing Sodom and Gomorrah because the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is a lack of hospitality. Because when this story happens. It's it's Abraham and God, and God wants to destroy Sodom, and Abraham says, well, my nephew lives in Sodom. I'd rather not it not be destroyed. And, and he's able to talk with God, and God says, okay, if we can find 10 good people in the city, I won't destroy it. And so God sends his angels. They go to the city. They stay with Abraham's nephew, Lot, and when they enter into his house, pretty soon thereafter, there's a knock on his door, and the rest of the people from the city say, Hey, Lot, you've just had some guests come into town. Um, bring them out here, and we want to have sex with them. And um, in that day, probably today as well, that would be considered to be not very hospitable. That's not what you do for guests. And and the thing about the culture of ancient times uh, in, in, in the Middle East, um, and even honestly in the Middle East to this day, um, guests are something that are highly valued and, and treasured. And so the idea that this town would have been that, that wicked, that inhospitable, um, is, is just, it's unforgivable in, in that point in time. And so because of that, Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. But again, remembering who they are said to go preach to, they're, they're sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so Jesus is saying it's going to be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah because they they didn't know God. They didn't know better. Um, and, and they treated guests like that. If you go and, and try to be someone's guest and they're inhospitable to you, it's going to be worse for them than, than it is for Sodom and Gomorrah because they're, they're the kind of people that should know better. They're religious people. They're people that know God. They should know how to be hospitable. But not only that, 
he's letting them know that there might be something even worse than just people who aren't willing to take you in. Because in verse 16, he says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus is letting them know that as they go to these religious people, that there might be people that are offended by their message, especially the message that, you know, the kingdom of heaven is near, that that this gospel is for everyone, that the gates of heaven have been opened wide for all. Religious people might not like this message, and they might have you punished. They might have you beaten. They may try to get you in prison. They may even try to ask for the Roman authorities, the Gentiles, to have you killed. But know that if that happens, when, when you appear before them, that, that, that the Holy Spirit is going to help you speak on my account, Jesus says. There's religious people that are going to be upset about this message because it's a message about the love of God and how it's even more available, more accessible than, than they've realized. I think that might resonate with us today about the warnings of possible persecution and the sources that it might come from. Jesus continues to give them warnings. He says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He again gives them the heads up of, this is what the world looks like today. Uh, brother against brother and 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 kids against their parents and there's a lot of wickedness and evil in this world that you need to prepare for and that that you need that you're going to be up against and there's going to be persecution that you're going to have to face that's what this world looks like that the the sentence i really want to focus on with this passage though is i tell you the truth you will not finish going through the cities of israel before the son of man comes because that's uh, a, a difficult sentence maybe to understand what's going on. Um, because there's a couple different ways that the Son of Man title is used. Sometimes Jesus uses it and he's referring to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Um, sometimes in, in Scripture, um, and, and even when Jesus says it, when this phrase Son of Man is used, it's just simply referring to the fact that uh, such person is a human. Um, you know, it, humans are sons of of man and sometimes when it's used uh and and especially i think this might be the case when it's used in the book of daniel the phrase son of man um can be translated as uh the the word for man in hebrew is adam and, and so much very literally the phrase son of man can mean son of adam um and there there's a kind of a a, a midrash a legend a, uh, in Judaism, where they talked about the Son of Man could be um, very directly Abel, because um, Abel was one of the sons of, of Adam, and, and Abel is one, um, because the Jews have been facing 
persecution and oppression, especially uh, in Jesus' time from the Romans, they were wondering, like, they, they felt like they had been doing everything right, that when they came back from the exile in Babylon, they had established this really good system that really honored God's word and, and tried to follow it to, to the best uh, that they could. And so they were really good at following the law. And they said, yet, even though we're following the law so well, we're still being oppressed by by Romans, by Gentiles, by by people who who don't know God. Uh, how what does it look like to be oppressed by those people? And they try to think through who's someone who's also been oppressed, um, even though they were being righteous. And they thought of the story of Cain and Abel and about how Abel was killed by his brother Cain for being righteous. And and so they said, ah, this must be when it, when Daniel talks about the Son of Man, it must be talking about Abel. And so when Abel comes back, it's when, it's when things will be made right and, and judgment will come. And the thing about it is when Jesus teaches this story, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, the very the, the previous time that we have in the text of Matthew where he uses the phrase Son of Man, it's, it's in reference in chapter 9 to the paralytic that's lowered down through the roof. And he says... So that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, and he heals the paralytic. But he references the Son of Man with forgiveness. And if Jesus is teaching about the Son of Man here as as Abel, he's saying when Abel comes back, again, not this is necessarily literally going to happen, kind of a metaphor. When Abel comes back, instead of rendering judgment and justice, he's going to bring forgiveness. And this is a radical concept. Jesus is teaching about forgiveness over and over again. It's one of the centers of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the main themes that Jesus brings up again and again is the idea of forgiveness. And so when he mentions Son of Man here, I think he's trying to have them remember back the last time he said Son of Man. And when he was doing that, he was teaching about forgiveness. And so I think he's giving a heads up to his disciples here. When you go on this journey, know that this world is a wicked place and the thing that you need to carry with you, you don't need extra stuff. What you need to carry with you is forgiveness. And that's what you need to have and be mindful of when you are visiting all these places and when you're facing this persecution. When things are difficult, you need to be people of forgiveness. Verse 23, a student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaimed from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus is here, I think, is trying to help them understand in light of the big picture, the grand scheme of things that God is doing, that they should have no fear as they go and they face what inevitably will will be the, the, this kind of persecution. Because he says the thing that is important is the one who has the authority over everything. That's God. He's the one that can make judgments about your soul. All these people can do is just kill your body, which is admittedly pretty significant. 
but it's not nearly as significant as what happens to your soul. Now, sometimes I think when we hear just the word hell, we kind of black out and, and we think about just uh, the theology that we know about hell or the doctrine that we know about hell or whatever those things are. Jesus here is not making any kind of theological doctrinal statement about hell. Um, he's just kind of trying to focus on that big picture of, of God's authority and, and what it means. And, and so that what you should do is, is place your hope, your trust in God. And, and because of that, you will not have to fear people and the persecution that inevitably comes for being a follower of Jesus. And then he continues on with just some more heads up kind of statements. Whoever acknowledges me, this verse 32, whoever, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my father in heaven. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I've come to turn Quote, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. End quote. These verses um, are, I think, potentially pretty shocking in some ways, especially the whole, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father. Uh, this, this quote here that's at and verses 35 and 36 comes from Micah chapter 7, and we're going to dig into that uh, even more in just a second. But but that statement of Jesus saying, I did not come to bring peace but a sword, I think Jesus is, is trying to help his disciples understand, again, the kind of world that this is, that it's one of, of people turning against one another. It's, it's one that that is lacking compassion, that is giving out persecution rather easily. And so he's letting them know what this world looks like and that that there's a lot of things that they're going to have to face, especially as they are to be people of forgiveness and people of compassion and people of, of hospitality and, and all those things that that God wants us to be, that it's, it's going to be offensive to, to the world. And even to the lost sheep of Israel, who should know better um, because they know God. There's a lot that they're going to face. And, and so the thing about the Micah passage is if, if Jesus directly quotes a, a verse, what he's trying to do is have his disciples think um, not just of that verse. Uh, it's not stripping that verse out of context and saying, here's, here's a proof text. What it's doing is, is it's making the disciples think through the text that they know by heart, that they've memorized, the text of Micah, and all that it has to say about God and about God's people and about their situation and, and so they're thinking through those verses and saying yeah uh, this world does look a lot, whole lot like the world that Micah was describing that you've got these people against each other and but the thing is as they're going through Micah I, I, I think they'll go back to kind of the theme of Micah and and let me read from you um, the chapter previous to the one that Jesus quoted from Micah Micah 6 verses 6 to 8 because I think this is a key verse for the entirety of the book of Micah and something the disciples, I think, would have keyed in and remembered what Micah is talking about. And that says, what, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O oh man, 
what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is a recurring theme that Jesus has been preaching and alluding to and and bringing up other Old Testament scriptures that talk about God doesn't want your religious piety. He doesn't want your acts of righteousness that are only meant to to show how, how you're this good religious person. He doesn't want your your sacrifices. He wants you to be compassionate. He wants you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. These are the kind of things that God requires, that God asks for. It's not about all the sacrifices that you've offered in the temple. It's not about all the religious rites that you've done. It's not about your pious behavior. It's about you being people who are compassionate, who are loving, who are showing who our God is, a God who loves, a God who is merciful, a God who is just. And that's, that's what Jesus is instructing his disciples to be, to carry that kind of attitude, that kind of message, that kind of way of living forward as they go out and as they are on mission. And then he continues on saying, anyone who loves, verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he is a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So he ends with this statement about about loving Jesus more than your your father or your mother and and maybe that sounds a little radical a little crazy to us but um according to the Talmud that kind of lays out how rabbinical Judaism is supposed to work um when you are asked to be a disciple of of a rabbi and you choose to follow that rabbi he becomes your family you don't live with your family anymore you go and you live with the rabbi you spend every waking moment with the rabbi and the rabbi the relationship between a rabbi and his disciple is is described as being more as stronger more important than the relationship between a father and a son and so those words sound maybe dramatic to our ears but again it's pretty much describing the way the disciples are supposed to live with Jesus and how they're supposed to follow their rabbi and I think it's a reminder that, that as we are followers of Jesus, we are called, we are tasked. If this is something that, that we take on, then we are supposed to go all in. And, and that Jesus is supposed to be our, our number one, our most important relationship, the one that we follow throughout. And that we teach what Jesus taught and we live as Jesus lived. And we do all of these things and we be people of compassion people who love mercy and act justly and walk humbly to be people who are are forgiving who live out generosity and hospitality 
this whole chapter, I think, does a really good job of saying what it looks like to be on mission. Um, again, these disciples, while they're being sent out, they're being sent out to other religious people, the people that are just like them. Now, eventually, the disciples are sent out to Gentiles and Samaritans. Uh, and, and, and so G- Jesus, uh, before his ascension, tells them, you know, to go out to the ends of the earth. And, and so it's, it's not like we're not also going to be commissioned to do that. But in this chapter, it's focusing on when you go to the religious people. And, and it's got some very dire warnings about persecution. Because when you preach this message that the kingdom of heaven is near, that, that this gospel of Jesus is for everyone, that the kingdom of heaven is open, you're going to face persecution. And not from people who don't know God, but from the people that are religious, from the people that should know better, from the people that are inhospitable and are not compassionate and and are living just a, a self-righteous piety who are giving God their, their sacrifices but not acting justly or loving mercy or walking humbly. And so if you go all in with Jesus, expect to receive persecution. And, and maybe receive it from unexpected sources. These are the warnings that Jesus gives. This is the heads up that he passes along to his disciples as, as to what things are going to look like, as to how this is all going to go down. And, and if we want to be Jesus' disciples, that we need to be all in and we should heed these kind of warnings and pay attention to to what Jesus has asked his disciples to do, to be people who act justly, who love mercy, who walk humbly. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.